Amen. That's a wonderful amen song because I think that everybody can relate to it. Just how blessed we are. Has anybody ever done something to you for you that's just been so kind and so unexpected that it just leaves you totally shocked and then motivated to say, I want to, we say, pay it forward. You know, I need to do the same thing. Um, I love, uh, you know, videos online or stories online that tell about these unexpected acts of kindness that just shock somebody, and uh, you all end up in tears at the end of it. Um, I I love those kinds of stories. Well, when I was a senior at the University of South Carolina, a group of my friends and I decided to go eat dinner at Zorba's in Irmo. About eight or ten of us were there eating. Now, when I was a college student, I attended here at First Baptist Church, so I've been here for a very long time, and I was here as a student, and so when we sat down at Zorba's, um, I looked over and recognized Dr. Wendell Step and Linda, uh, the pastor, our, our pastor emeritus here now, and they were sitting at a nearby table. And after they finished their meal, Dr. Step and Linda came over to our table, and uh, he sat down with us and, uh, you know, talked with us, got to know the students. I was the only one who attended the church that was at Zorba's, asked questions about where people came from, just left an incredible impression on these folks because of him just taking time to sit there and get to know some of these students. So later on, they they left, and uh, when it was time for the bill, the waitress came by and said, "Um, the gentleman in the suit paid for your whole table, paid for the whole meal. And we were just shocked, you know, and I couldn't believe that he had done something. In fact, it still motivates me today, just that unexpected act of kindness that makes you say, you know what, I could do the same thing and I can bless somebody in an incredible way. And that, that began a great relationship uh, for me with Dr. Estep. Always been a blessing in my life. Well, you know, how we treat others really makes a difference. We sometimes wonder whether we have... Uh, Uh, what we may have to offer that could really, you know, encourage somebody or help somebody. You know, we may not be able to accomplish uh, incredible um, feats. We may not have all of the knowledge or wisdom that we can just pass along, but we can always extend kindness. And in doing so, it makes a difference in people's lives. And it also, for us, brings honor to the Lord. As Christians, kindness is a non-negotiable because God has been so kind to us. He expects us to do the same with others. Kindness is the foundation of Christian love. You know, we live in a pretty self-centered world. Christians ought to be fundamentally different. They ought to be noticeable by the way they stand out for their kindness. Our interactions with people ought to serve as a witness of the love of God that's in our hearts. Well, today we're finishing a series called This Is My Story. Um, And the premise has been that everybody has a story to tell. And the story we have been focused on is what happens when God gets hold of somebody's life. Hopefully, over the last several weeks, if you've been here with us, you've taken the opportunity to share your story. Because we all have a story to tell. What I really hope and prayed for last week is that some of you will be put on the spot this past week. To to be forced to tell just how good God's been uh, to you. And what he has done by setting you free from sin and giving you the hope of eternal life. Well, this week we're going to wrap it up with really a twist on what's happened during the series. Because every other person we've looked at in scripture has had this amazing, has had an encounter with God that changed their life. But today we're going to be in the Old Testament where uh, it was a man who had an encounter not with God, but one of God's people. And the way that he showed love really transformed his life, and I think has a message for us today. 
The person he encountered was the man after God's own heart, King David. King David was a great leader. His life was marked by incredible feats. Of course, that includes the defeat of the seemingly invincible Goliath when he was just a young boy. At many times in his life, the shepherd boy who was turned king showed tremendous courage uh, as a leader, um, especially as a leader of the people of God. While acknowledging that the Lord God was, there, uh, was the source of the accomplishments, I think we can say that no matter what, David was an impressive human leader. He's a, his leadership skills are still studied today. So in the normal course of things, we would expect the king who ascended to a throne to begin to come, become a little bit arrogant, maybe a whole lot arrogant, and place their needs above the needs of people around them. We might assume that he would excuse himself from the responsibility of showing kindness to people who are in need. We might assume that he would forget any promises he made before he was made king. Now, we have to admit that David was a flawed character. He messed up a good bit. But very often, David proved himself to be the man after God's own heart and proved the assumptions wrong that we might have about the king of Israel. David is characterized as the man after God's own heart. And in his character on display in this story really shows or really shines uh, in this moment. But what I hope you will remember is that Jesus is in fact the true and better David. David's not the hero. Jesus is always the hero. The way that David acts in the scripture today is an example of how God acts towards you. Through the person of Jesus Christ. So today we're going to turn back to the Old Testament. We're going to be in the book of 2 Samuel. And there's a good bit of context before we get to the passage we're going to be looking at this morning in chapter 9. And uh, so I want to address those things. Beyond the power of kindness, we are, going to be seeing, we are going to see the power of covenant in today's message. So I'm going to try to give you a little bit of background on what covenant is about. Particularly as it relates to David and the man who was his best friend, Jonathan who was the son of King Saul. In the ancient world, there were many types of uh, covenants that were made. But the one that we're going to discover today is the blood covenant that was so well illustrated by David and Jonathan. They became blood brothers. Did any of y'all, when you were younger, decide to become blood brothers with somebody? I'm pretty sure I said that I did, but I was too afraid to actually draw blood, you know? But I said, I'll stand by you as if I did, you know, with the guy. But... Um, if you can recall a moment like that, then perhaps you might understand a little bit about what this relationship was like that was forged between David and Jonathan. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 3, we get a glimpse of this. It says, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And in verse 3 of this chapter, the word made comes from a Hebrew word, korat. And the word literally means to cut. So to cut or to draw blood, but really the way that this word's generally used is to cut off or to cut down. But in this example, Karat is, uh, is partnered with another word, barit. Karat barit, which together means to cut covenant. Jonathan and David formed a friendship built not just on mutual concern for one another, but covenantal friendship. And in the covenant, Jonathan promised to support David, and David promised to show favor to the house of Jonathan after God had raised him 
to the throne of Israel. Because David had been anointed king. Saul was king. The heir to the throne was Jonathan. But they knew David was going to become king. Well, very often... A covenant ceremony involved animal sacrifice. And one way it would happen is they would take an animal and they would kill it, cut it in two, place one side here and one side here. And then the two people making covenant would walk between this this animal that's been cut in two. And the binding agreement was not to be entered into lightly. It was a moment of total life allegiance. The testimony they were saying was that their intention was to die to their own interests and now live for the interests of the other. And they were always to live into consideration of the other. Well, it also was a symbol to God that said, if I do not keep this vow, then let it be done to me what's been done to this sacrifice. That's what they would say. So the closest thing that we really know to this in our culture is marital vows, which is supposed to be a reverent commitment. It's about the other, not about me. So David and Jonathan had made this covenant to care for one another. But the problem is that Jonathan's father, Saul, wanted David dead. So Jonathan proved his allegiance to David by giving him warning when Saul was going to pursue David. But at the same time, he never abandoned his father. Now, David proved his allegiance because he didn't have Saul killed, even though he had opportunity to do so. Ultimately, what happens is King Saul and Jonathan are on the battlefield, and they both die. And that's how the book of 2 Samuel, where we're going to be this morning, opens up. It opens with the death of King Saul and his son Jonathan. Following their death, practically the entire royal family was killed because the king had died. I've told you all before about the time that I was teaching um, Bible school at my home church. And we were actually teaching this particular passage. And it was a groom full of first and second graders. And we were talking about this story. And so we planned it so that somebody dressed in a biblical costume comes running into the classroom. And they say, the king is dead. The king is dead. Run for your lives. And the entire classroom of first and second graders leap to their feet, scream, and run down the hallway. (laughs) I'm pretty sure they made it to the parking lot. I don't think we ever finished the lesson. But it was a memorable experience nonetheless. Well, that whole idea of run for your lives, that's a true account. According to 2 Samuel 4, uh, this is what happens. Uh, Jonathan has a son who is alive, who's five years old at the time. He's with the rest of the royal family. In 2 Samuel 4, 4, it says, When the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, is a crippled boy. He lived in secret in a town far from the side of the king, far away from the capital city. David did not even know he was still alive. Well, in chapter 5, David becomes king over Israel and Judah. He takes the capital city of Jerusalem, claims it as the capital of the Jewish people. And that brings us to chapter 9, where we're going to be focused this morning. So I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 5. It says, Then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? 
And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Well, what do you think would normally happen to the children and grandchildren of a king in the ancient world when a new dynasty was established among a people? They were killed, right? They were killed or run out of, out of, the, out of the country, eliminated. Well, David, the man after God's own heart, rises above the fray here of typical action of a king to demonstrate what godly character in a position of power actually should look like. And I think in this passage, we're also going to see, get a glimpse of God's attitude and actions towards us in the way that he interacts towards this man, Mephibosheth. Anyways, the kindness was not new. It was not spontaneous. David had promised to care for Jonathan's family. Remember the covenant he made in 1 Samuel. So David started with someone um, who might know, which was Ziba. Then he worked to have the son of this man he made a pledge to, Jonathan, brought to his palace. And David began the process of showing the kindness he promised uh, rather than letting it remain words only. It took a great deal of effort for David to locate Ziba, who might know about this young man named Mephibosheth, so that he could actually keep his promise to Jonathan. And I'm reminded of this question. Are we excused from keeping our promises If it turns out to be hard to do. No, we're not. We live in a society of convenience today. But God expects more from his people than just a life of convenience. In fact, it reminded me of this phenomenon in our culture called random acts of kindness. Clearly, this is a real positive thing in our culture where people just, you know, the pay it forward idea of just randomly show kindness The good news is we have social media, so sometimes they can record it and show it to the world. But uh, I think, are there any negative aspects to this random acts of kindness? And you hate to complain about anything that shows up to be a good thing in our world. Because our world is increasingly more cynical, less and less compassionate. So random acts of kindness have to be good. But here's the point. If we stop with just random acts of kindness, then we've missed it. Because God calls us to something much greater Reminds me of a scripture in Matthew 7 where Jesus himself says to his disciples in verse 12, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets, the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This, this is Jesus offering the Cliff Notes version of the Bible, enti- Bible's entire teaching on how to relate to others. It's a revolutionary statement. He's not saying random acts of kindness expressed on a whim, uh, you know, are the way to live. He's saying, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's this lifestyle of compassion and caring with people that you know and people that you don't know. So I would ask, have you avoided showing kindness recently because it brought risk to you? To the way people might view you. Maybe to uh, your situation in your job. Or to your way of life. Have you avoided risking something. Because I mean risking something. In order to show kindness. 
Well, there's nothing wrong with random acts of kindness, but let me say this. As believers in Jesus Christ, we're called to something even more difficult. It's a lifestyle of compassion and caring in every interaction, not just on a whim. So David plans an act of kindness here. It's really risky kindness. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. David's going against conventional wisdom. I have to imagine that there are people surrounding him that are thinking, you know, David gets all the hard things right. But in a simple matter, I mean, what is he thinking? David, it would be crazy to not eliminate this guy who has a claim claim to the throne. What are you thinking? This is going to come back to really hurt you. But David was not willing to do that. And the overriding reason was this vow he had made to Saul's son, Jonathan. In fact, in the scriptures, in 1 Samuel 20, verse 15, Jonathan himself says to David, You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So he says, there's going to come a day, David, when your enemies are going to be cut off. You're going to be ascended. Don't forget me. Don't forget my people. So David faces a true test of character. He locates Jonathan's only living relative. He has him brought to his residence in Jerusalem. And he recalls here this promise that he had made. And now he's striving to fulfill the vow. Look at verse 6. It says, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, here is your servant. That sounds a lot like Ziba, doesn't it? David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. And he prostrated himself again and said, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? So when Mephibosheth is brought before David, he really couldn't even be certain of what might happen to him. He had to be concerned, even though people said, no, 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 David's going to be nice to you. He was friends with your dad. He's probably, you know, maybe he has an honor he wants to give to you. I'm sure Mephibosheth is saying, hold on, guys. I'm grandson to the former king. So he wasn't really sure. He was in the position of a defeated enemy before a king who had every right and power to grant life or death in a moment like this. In addition... He had to show that he had no intention of becoming uh, king. So I think that's why he bows before David. Just to demonstrate that you are the only one who has a claim to the throne. You're the rightful ruler, the legitimate ruler of Israel. And David told Mephibosheth the reason he was being merciful. He says, I intend to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. So now knowing that David's mercy was not based on a whim, but on this deep friendship, and covenant bond he had with Jonathan, Mephibosheth could be assured David would not easily be turned against him. So he shows this respect by bowing before David. He shows uh, no pretense while he refers to himself as a dead dog. In other words, it's a, a, it's a statement of humility. I'm, I'm not worthy of any of this, David, is what he's saying. Well, clearly, David's not God. But he is a typological Jesus from the Old Testament. The hope that we have in Jesus is that he was the better and the perfect David. In some ways, you can see God's kindness towards us in the way that David demonstrated kindness to Mephibosheth. 
Because we're all broken sinners before God. We have no claim to life before holy God. Like Mephibosheth, we don't have a good leg to stand on when we come before him. We come to him just seeking mercy. Story's not over, though. David didn't just do a one-time nice thing for Mephibosheth to appease his conscience. He also made plans to continue caring for him. So the passage goes on to tell how David says to Ziba, you're going to be the steward over the land. And a lot of times this would happen in this culture so that an owner of the land could serve in some way. Perhaps as an ambassador or a military leader. But Mephibosheth didn't really have a title like that or duties like that. But David had plans for Mephibosheth. And so this most incredible honor is bestowed upon him. Just skip down there to the end of verse 11. 11b through 13, I'm going to read to you now. It says, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. In this text, David honors his vow to Jonathan by restoring to Mephibosheth his family honor and then inviting Mephibosheth to be a member of the royal family, to come dine at his table. Now, the message for you and me this morning could not be more clear. It's this. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how you got here. God invites you to his table. When God gets hold of your life, no matter where you are, you are invited to the king's table. And it's not because you're good enough. It's not because you've earned a seat there. It is simply God's mercy and God's grace that extends this invitation to invite you before the table. I read a chapter out of um, a book by Max Licato several months ago. It really captured my imagination. And he talks about Mephibosheth, but he connects it to a New Testament story that most of you will be familiar with. It's the story that Jesus tells to illustrate a point that we remember as the prodigal son. Uh, or the story of the lost son. And in that story, there was a younger son who goes and takes, cashes in the family trust and wastes it all in uh, wild living in a far country. So he finds himself destitute and desperate. And he thinks, maybe if I go back to my dad, he'll show me kindness and at least let me work for him where I can have, a, you know, a nice meal. So as he's going home, he had no clue how his father would really respond, which was to run out to him, to embrace him, to command the servants to bring uh, shoes for him, a ring for him, and a robe for him. He says, slaughter the best meat. We're going to have a party. And over to the side is the older brother who sees all this happening, and he's thinking, what is my dad doing? And so the father speaks to the older son, and he tries to explain to him, My son who was lost is found. And he talks about grace, but the older uh, older brother just doesn't get it at all. And he walks out. Well, Lucado asks in this book, he says, have you heard what happened next? Well, of course, that's not written in the scriptures, but Lucado in his imagination writes out 
this story that I think illustrates such a perfect point. He says, after this, the older brother thinks to himself, well, you know, if dad won't execute justice on my brother, then maybe I'll do it. And so he starts to follow around his younger brother, and he says to him, hey, uh, hey, bro, that's a nice robe you've got, but you better be careful. Don't get a spot on that. If you do, dad's liable to send you to the cleaners with it. And of course, the younger brother's thinking, ah, he's always running his mouth. But subconsciously, he starts checking his robe to see if there's a spot on it. Later on, the older brother sees him, and he says, wow, what a ring you've got. But you know, dad really likes it when you wear the ring on your thumb. And he says, well, that's crazy. He's never said that before. And besides, it doesn't really fit real well on my thumb. It's not real comfortable there. The older brother says, well, is this about you being comfortable? Is this about you honoring dad? And besides that, your your sandals, the laces are loose. If dad sees you with the loose laces, then you know what? He's liable just to take the gift back. And the younger brother said, he wouldn't do that. It was a gift. Nevertheless, he looks down, sees the the laces are loose, so he starts to tighten them up. And as he does, he sees a spot on his robe, and he starts to rub it out. And then he remembers that ring that should have been on his thumb, so he starts to switch it. And then he hears the father's voice. And so in shame, he runs off. And he starts to avoid his dad, and then he stops wearing the robe. He starts wearing the sandals and the ring. And then he remembers that far country where there wasn't so much pressure on him. Locato says, you know where you find this story? He says, I read it in Galatians. So I'm going to read to you in Galatians chapter 1. This is the story. It says, I'm shocked that you are turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news. But it's not the good news at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. And in chapter 2, it says, yet we know That a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. In fact, this same sentiment is found throughout the scriptures. In the church at Rome, Paul has to remind the people... That they are declared righteous because of their faith, not because of their work. In the Philippian church, there were older brothers who weren't concerned with the fact that the ring was on the wrong finger. But they said, you know what, if you really want to follow God, you've got to be circumcised. And in the church at Jerusalem, they had to be reminded because they were telling all of the non-Jewish people who were responding to the gospel, if you really want to be saved, you've got to do what Moses commanded and you've got to obey the law. Well, the problem here is the same everywhere you look. A total disregard for grace. Somewhere along the way, Christians thought their invitation to the Lord's table was because of their works. Because they were good enough. Because their robe was spotless. And their sandals were tight. And the ring was on the right finger. They thought it was due to their family heritage. It was because they weren't as bad as those other people. And I think we see the same thing happening in the church today. In every generation, Christians need to be reminded of what God says to us in Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Folks, it's because of grace and grace alone that you're spiritually alive, heavenly positioned, connected to God, billboards of mercy, and honored children. Mephibosheth was invited to the table not because of his good behavior, not because of the right moves. He was a lame outcast living in a town called Lodabar, but David brings him to the palace in Zion. He goes from obscurity to royalty, from no future to the king's table. Well, guess what? We're no different. When God found me, when he got hold of my life, I was on a dead-end road in Lodabar, and he saved me. Not because of anything I had done, but because of the grace of Jesus. And now I am seated with him in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And he'll do the same thing for you. If you've never responded to the invitation to God to come to his table, that's where he wants you. And you don't have to perform to get there. You just have to believe. Believe in Jesus. Believe that he's died on the cross for you. Believe that he made a way for you and is saving a seat for you. People label you with all kinds of things, but it only matters what God says. And let me tell you what God says to you. You are loved, you are forgiven, and you are welcome. Today, will you respond to God's invitation? Our Father and God, we thank you so much for the ability to read this word. We pray now that it would pierce our hearts, God, and that we would respond. Thank you so much for the grace and the favor that's only ours through Jesus to be seated at your table. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. God, speaking to your heart, I'd ask you to respond. We'll have a time of invitation. And you can say yes to Jesus today. It may be for salvation, it may be for joining the church or some other decision. But we have a time of invitation. So I'm gonna invite you to stand. Our choir's gonna sing. I'll be down front. You respond. <laughs>